Silence can be loud. Sometimes, you know, a little peace and quiet can be the most amazing gift in the world, right? A few weeks ago, we had no idea that over in Stonewood, they were doing a festival for the firefighters, and Noah woke up at like 10, 15, and came to our room and asked us if there was a war going on outside because there was fireworks going on. Uh, it seemed like forever. And sometimes silence can be the most wonderful thing in the world. And in a busy world like we live in today, I think we could all use a little more silence. But silence can also be a bad thing. Scientists uh, at Orfield Labs in Minneapolis created a chamber that's the world's quietest room. The whole room is covered floor to ceiling in sound dampening material. It's so quiet that you can hear your own organs, your heart, your stomach, even your ears, which make a tiny amount of noise. It turns out, though, that it's not a uh, especially pleasant experience, especially when they turn off the lights on you. The longest anyone has ever spent in that room is 45 minutes. Because being deprived of the usual reassuring sounds can induce fear and discomfort. And this is, explains why sensory deprivation is a form of torture. Because silence can be loud. So we've been looking at the Old Testament book for the last few weeks of Malachi. And this minor prophet writes the last book before 400 years of silence that is only broken by the coming of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin in the Gospels. We've seen in this book six disputes between God and his people, an airing of grievances. And God has legit reasons to be upset with the Israelites. But the Israelites are mischaracterizing God, this loving God, and they're feeling the consequences of their sin without repentance. And we saw God tell them that he loved them. And the people of Israel have the audacity to say, how? How have you loved us, God? Next, God highlighted their offensive practices of bringing their worst to the temple. Sick and diseased animals. Their worship was offensive to God. We saw how Israel had broken their covenant with God over and over. And this covenant breaking with God led them to hurting each other as well because our relationships with God always affect our relationship with the people around us. And then Israel brings dispute number four against God, that he has neglected them and allowed injustice to come upon them. And they literally say, God rewards evil and those that commit it. They're all mixed up. And these disputes are going back and forth between God and his people. So we see here the fifth dispute between God and Israel is that God calls them to turn back and the people respond with how. How? You kind of get the impression that Israel was playing dumb a little bit right here, right? God had outlined very simply everything that they needed to do to be obedient and live a blessed life. It's like if you scold a teenage boy for tripping someone and they say, what I do, right? They know what they did and Israel knew what they did. And God still, though, takes time to patiently spell it out for them. 
be in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. You can check there in your app, or there should be a Bible in front of you as well. Very last book of the Old Testament. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Israel, are not consumed. God says, look, I don't change, and you should be happy that I don't change, because if I did change, it wouldn't be good for you. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. See, God isn't the one that is different. They are the one that has changed. God has kept every part of his covenant, but they haven't. And God still, even now, wants to honor this covenant that he made with his people, if only they would return to him. And Israel asks, how can we return? God basically uh, goes back to the beginning, back to the simplest things, the tangible things, with another instance of how they're bringing apathetic and less than their best worship. See, early on, God established that he would bless them in their crops and in their cattle and in their endeavors, but he wanted the top 10% as a gift back to him through the temple. And this was a constant reminder for them that where their blessings were coming from. So every harvest and every sale and every time that they would get some form of blessing or fruit, they would take the top as a thank you to God to remind them who these blessings came from. And this 10% is known as a tithe. Now, these people weren't working at the FBI or in the school system. They weren't getting direct deposit checks into their bank. Remember when we used to have to go to the bank? What idiots we were, right? <laughs> but for many, this tithe was a physical harvest, right? It's wheat and grapes and olives. And all these, uh, these different harvests come at different times of the year. The same with sheep and with cattle. So they were different times to receive the offerings. And their offerings went to feed the Levites and the priests and maintain the temple and to help the widow and the fatherless and the immigrants that were among them. There were other types of special offerings throughout the year as well. But God established in the Old Testament that a good place to cheerfully start giving to him is 10%. And Jesus doesn't overthrow this when he comes on the scene in the gospel. He actually pushes it deeper because the emphasis of Jesus' teaching is on giving everything, surrendering all that we have, a whole life to surrender to Christ. The overall emphasis of giving in the New Testament is generosity. Because giving itself is a gift. God is a cheerful giver, and he wants to be cheerful givers, uh, to make us cheerful givers as well, because it's far better to give than receive. But the people in Israel were knowingly holding back this act of worship known as tithing. And God says, you're robbing me. God had promised to bless Israel, but their disobedience had led them to hard harvest and a difficult time feeding themselves. They weren't thriving, and God tells them how to get help. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, 
says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. They needed to repent and to go back to obedience and God would uphold his covenant. Now, giving is not a trick to get rich, but giving is obedience. And God does bless obedience. Now, being blessed means your life is better. And that comes in many different forms, but blessed is blessed. And even though Israel's clearly losing this argument because they are completely to blame and God is always just and holy, they still try to throw one last jab at God. That brings us to dispute number six, the last one. Israel says it is pointless to serve God. Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And once again, they accuse God of not dealing with wickedness and allowing evil to prevail. They had forgotten all that God had done for them. And they were not meditating on where God had brought them from. And they took his blessings for granted. And they got overwhelmed in the now. So it was easy for them to get angry at God and believe lies. Because they had forgotten where they had come from. So God responds by affirming his covenant with them again. So that they would remember the promises of God. God says, hey... Don't forget where I brought you from. Hey, before you get angry at me and before you question me, remember who you are. Remember who I am and what I've done for you. God responds by reaffirming his covenant so that they would remember these promises. And even in this heated dispute of airing of grievances, God still wants to remind them that he cares and he loves them. In verse 16, it says, then those that fear the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention, and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who served God and the one who does not serve him. God tells Israel they are like a treasure to him. And he will soon make it clear who is blessed and who would be judged because of their wickedness. The faithful followers of God were to write this down and remember this promise that God loved them. And that God was in control and one day in his timing he would make things right. And this was important for them to remember because a long, drawn-out silence was coming at the end of this book. Just around the corner. God wouldn't speak to Israel for hundreds of years. 
And the faithful remnant would need something to hold on to, that God loves them and God is in control and God will make all things right. And God will bless obedience and remember those that fear and honor his name. And he does judge those that reject him. Throughout the Bible, God's judgment is symbolized as a cleansing fire, purifying gold and silver, but taking away the impurities. God has given ample warnings, and he's forgiven them over and over and over, and he's shown mercy and grace that was undeserved. But one day in the future, he will make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And there is a reward for those who choose to follow God and an eternal punishment for those that choose to reject him. Now, God is not willing, the Bible tells us, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But he does not force himself on us. And he allows us to choose to reject him. We see in the closing of this book, the warning for the wicked and the promise for those that follow him. Warnings like this should never make us feel like we should shake our fist and celebrate. These warnings should make us shudder because it's what we deserve. But these promises should also fill us with hope. Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that they will, uh, it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healings in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. See, when we read those words, we need to understand that without Christ, we fit into that group of arrogant and evildoers. But because of Jesus, he says there's healing in his wings and he uh, will come to us and restore us. And these people here in this book are about to head into 400 years of silence, but the future promise of the son of righteousness with healing in his wings would be what they would hold on to and look forward to. Health and healing and restoration and justice and contentment. This is what it looks like for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the joy of the followers of God is likened to a baby calf frolicking in a field. All fear and sin and death and abuse gone forever. And if you have suffered at the hands of evil people and feel as though you have gotten no justice, this is your comfort. God, the righteous judge, will bring a conclusion to your pain. And there will be a day when all disputes are over between God and his people. No more grievances, no more tension, no more silence, no more waiting, just like back at the Garden of Eden. God and his people walking together face to face, fully known and fully loved.
The last two verses of this book of Malachi are a cliffhanger that would resonate through silence for 400 years. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. This is a a cliffhanger that's worthy of an action-packed thriller. Someone is coming to announce something that is special. And this prophetic voice mentioned here is recognized as John the Baptist by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. And back in chapter 3 of Malachi in verse 1, God says, I will send a messenger, but then I am coming. And John the Baptist would break the silence and announce that God himself was here to bring restoration and healing. His name was Jesus. And all the Hebrew scripture that we call the Old Testament built up to this. That the Messiah was coming to fix everything. But then their scripture just ended. And for them, it it was over. Genesis to Malachi, but then nothing. Until he broke the silence in the loudest and most amazing way possible at just the right time. And for 2,000 years, that event has echoed through history. The undisputed single greatest man to walk the planet. And there's not a single country today that doesn't have churches and Christians that follow the Messiah. And 2.2 billion people claim that name of Christ. For now, the people of Israel, they wait for the Son of God to confront evil and to restore his people and to bring his healing justice. And the silence was loud. In the book of Malachi, God was calling his people to return to him and to repent of the sin that was hurting them. He wasn't okay to let them live in their sin and to hurt themselves and to hurt those around them. But the people were blaming God for their unhappiness. They thought God was the reason that things weren't going well for them. When in reality, it was their disobedience that was hurting them. God had disputes. God was calling them to a closer relationship with him. I wonder what God's disputes might be with his people today. What would God want to tell the global church today? I see a meme on the internet. It it said, if we uh, were in New Testament times, that Paul would be writing us a letter, right? The American church. Would it be, would his dispute be that our worship is half-hearted and impure? That we weren't putting him First, that we weren't accepting his word, that we were rejecting it because it made us uncomfortable or because it was not socially acceptable? Is it that we are disobedient and that we are distant? What would his disputes be with us today? Let's all bow our heads, close our eyes as the band comes.
Take a moment, a breath, a pause, and ask God to speak to our hearts about anything in us that he wants to change, anything that doesn't line up. I'll give you some prayer prompts as we go, and you, you spin off into your own prayer between you and your Father. God, is there any behavior that is causing pain in my relationship with you? God, is there anything in my life that's causing pain between me and the relationships with the people around me? God, are you pleased with the worship that I offer you? God, is there anything that I want more than your presence in my life? God, is there any attitude that I'm stuck in that is not pleasing to you? God, thank you for Jesus Christ who came to settle every dispute between me and you and to bring peace and to cover my sin and to make me innocent before you today. God, even when there's silence now, help me to look forward to your second coming where you will put a period on this age and dwell with your people forever. And even when it's silent right now, help me to know that it's just for now and not forever.
as we continue in an attitude of prayer, I want to speak to just a few people maybe in the room that you aren't sure yet that Jesus is standing between you and God because you haven't accepted him yet. You haven't accepted the gift of the cross. You haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you yet. That's an amazing thing. Begin to deal with that right now. So easy to push those things off till later. But see, we all have a problem and it's called sin. Every single person in this room has broken God's law. We've lied and we've thought wicked thoughts and we've said wicked things. And because of that, we have a wall between us and God. Because God is a holy God. And he cannot fellowship with sin. And that's why when Adam and Eve sinned, it was such a big deal. Because over and over, ever since then, sin has flooded the world and death and war and disease and pain has come in because of our sin. But God had a plan from the beginning to send his son, Jesus Christ. God in the flesh equal with the Holy Spirit and the God the Father. See, God himself got off the throne and he came and he was born of a virgin and he lived 33 years. He lived a perfect and a holy life, never once sinning so that an innocent person could die and pay the punishment for all of us guilty people. And that's the choice extended to you today. Do I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ to save me or do I want to bear the weight of my sin myself. See, God does not force himself on us. It is freely given. But you have to accept. Put your faith on him to save you. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross taking all our sin. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the sons of God. Romans 5.8 says that God commended his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is in my place. That's called the gospel. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, Jesus died in our place, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he crushed sin and the grave and death forever raising in victory and bringing our salvation with him. And then he ascended to heaven. And that's your choice today, to accept and put your faith in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And billions of other people throughout that time have put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. And you can join them in knowing that you have nothing between you and the God that made you. Because he is a forgiving God. It doesn't make sense. And the, the deal is, is not fair on God's behalf. It's all him. And none of us, not of works, lest any of us should boast. You can call on God right now. It's not a magic prayer. Change it however you need to. You can call out to him with something right now, like this. 
Dear Jesus, I know I'm a, a sinner. And I know because of my sin that I deserve hell. But God, forgive me. I'm turning from all of that, everything that I've held on to. And I put my faith in you alone to save me. I put my faith in Jesus Christ on the cross, dying for my sin and raising again. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. If that's you today, you've made that choice once and for all. You're not playing games or just reciting a, a poem or a pledge of allegiance or something like that. You really made that decision in your heart today love to challenge you to write that down on your connection card before you turn it in. I want to follow up with you and talk to you about what's next because this isn't the end of something. It's the beginning of the most amazing thing in all the world, a walk with your creator. So write, I chose Jesus. That's you today on your connection card and put that in the offering boxes when you go later. Dear Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for, for your forgiveness. We thank you for your love. God, we thank you that over and over, even when we turn our backs on you and we don't deserve it, you always pursue us. God, help our worship to be pure. God, help us to never get in that space where we look around at the world and we wonder how good you are. God, help us to understand that you are good and that you love us and that you are in control and one day you're coming back to set this all right right